Well, in our current study, take your Bibles and look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And so far in this letter, the spotlight has been on the sheep of the church. And now Peter is going to turn that spotlight on shepherds. So some of you are thinking that's super exciting. We get to finally see the pastor sweat. You're right. You're right. Peter is going to preach to me and to the elders. Some have wondered why he goes this direction, but it seems rather obvious to me. Commentaries have spilled a lot of ink trying to decide whether this really is connected in some way, and some translations even took out a very important manuscript opening here from which we get our English translation, therefore. It's actually in the text. It's in the earliest manuscripts. Therefore, we might even say, therefore, accordingly. So in other words, on the heels of all that he has been talking about with regard to suffering, therefore, accordingly, I want to talk to the leaders. I've entitled this opening few verses, called to take the lead in affliction, called to take the lead in affliction. I read it earlier, but let's just do it again. Verse 1, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this transition is where Peter's mind, I think, would naturally go. I believe his mind naturally is moving toward closing out this letter, but it would naturally go to the place where he, he wants now to stir up the leaders. He's already stirred up the hearts of the sheep to suffer well as believers. He's reminded them that in the end, when Christ comes, they're on the right side of the issue. They're on the right side of eternity. And he had called them to humbly submit to the affliction and staying far away from any kind of attitude or conduct that would cause an unbeliever to give legitimate reason for coming down on them lawfully. He warned the sheep of that. He encouraged them to entrust their souls to Almighty God. And Peter knows that if the sheep are going to stand firm under the affliction, then he has to address those whom God has called as servants of the church to stay out front, to get out front, to walk the path and show the sheep where to go. The shepherds of the sheep must take the position out in front of the sheep. They must take the lead in this matter of affliction and suffering. 
And you can easily see how Peter's flow of thought naturally moves from chapter 4 to chapter 5. Notice he says the, he's a witness of the sufferings, chapter 5, verse 1. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, go back to verse 13 of chapter 4. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. That's his entire sort of thread you're suffering for Christ. You're filling up that which was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You're sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And I have witnessed the sufferings of Christ and will have my share in it. You remember, Peter was martyred. Notice chapter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 4. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He's talking about the flock of God, the household of God. This is natural for Peter's mind to go to the shepherds of the flock of God because he's been talking about the household of God and the chastening of God's people that they might be purified and enter into their glory. That makes sense. Also, verse 2 of chapter 5, I don't want you to shepherd them under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, or literally according to God. The reason he didn't put the will of, I believe, in verse 2 of chapter 5 is because he'd said it specifically using the word the will of in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are going to entrust their souls to the faithful creator. So he's talked about all of the sufferings of Christ. That is connected. He's talked about shepherding the flock of God and the household of God. He's talked about doing it according to the will of God. All of these themes from chapter 4, which he spoke to the sheep in this last section, he's now pulling into his discussion about shepherding. In fact, in verse 1, he says he's a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Remember, he'd said that in verse 13 of chapter 4. So also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice. And then it seems to me there's even one more connection in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory Remember that from all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4, we have a salvation that will not fade. Same term, unfading crown, unfading salvation. But notice verse 13 of chapter 4, at the revelation of his glory. And verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, or in this case a Christian leader, let him not be ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. There's always on Peter's mind this motivation, as much as it was for the sheep, you want to think about meeting Christ, then it is the same motivation for the shepherd, you want to think about answering to him for serving the sheep and how you did it. How are you serving the sheep? Sometimes the ministry of leaders has, has been more like operational managers and logistics type of people. I mean, for years we promoted the idea that taking responsibility for the flock was kind of managing the logistics. And if you got good enough at it, you're, you're sort of rising up in some sort of position over God's people. Peter is going to make the case, that's not, that's not how you serve the church. You're, you're a servant of the church. You're an example to the church. 
In fact, no church will be properly nourished and watched over without servants who will shepherd the flock on behalf of the chief of shepherding, Christ himself. And there was always this concern that the sheep are going to be run over by CEO types trying to build their empire and build their company. Nor are shepherds the kind of people that have a position and they get paid for a position and then, you know, when trouble comes, they just, they take off. They're like John 10, the hirelings who are illegitimate shepherds. They're not good shepherds. The first sign of a pack of wolves, sheep are left. Peter is going to make the case that's not shepherding either. True shepherds are not organizational managers per se. They're not CEO types in a business framework. They're not hirelings. They're not given to the church like it was their chosen vocation, career choice for material gain or earthly comfort. No. It's also true that the church kind of got in the habit of just putting warm bodies into it. So you had all these, and to this day we're suffering the effects of it. You have all these untested men, untested leaders in the church. They have no skill in handling the word of God. They're novices as it relates to their grasp of biblical theology. No proven maturity in godly living over a long period of time. No increasing wisdom for dealing with the duties and dangers of soul care. Just no provenness. But there they are. They have a position telling people what to do, standing up, speaking, whatever's coming out. Who who knows whether it's accurate or not. Peter's going to make the case that this isn't for your personal significance. This isn't ultimately for any position or power. You're not to recklessly expose the sheep to dangerous elements or predators. You're not to neglect the health of the flock. Whenever you come across a portion of Scripture like this, it gets really gripping for pastors called by God to serve the flock. Whenever I ponder the burden of responsibility in the call to shepherd the flock, It's not uncommon to just utterly become overwhelmed. I remember years ago in the Rediscovering Pastoral Ministry book that was put out by Dr. John MacArthur and several of the faculty of the training ministry there, there were lists just from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, just lists of the responsibilities of a pastor. And I thought it would be nice for me to overwhelm you like I get overwhelmed. Just listen to this. Paul instructed Timothy in just the first epistle, correct those teaching false doctrine and call them to a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Fight for divine truth and for God's purposes, keeping his own faith and a good conscience. Pray for the lost and lead the men of the church to do the same. Call women in the church to fulfill their God-given role of subjection and raise up godly children, setting an example of faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Boy, isn't that message needed today? Carefully select spiritual leaders for the church on the basis of giftedness, godliness, and virtue. 
Recognize the source of error and those who teach it and point out these things to the rest of the church. Constantly be nourished in your own life on the words of Scripture and its sound teaching and giving that to the church, avoiding all myths and all false doctrines. Discipline your own life for the purpose of promoting godliness. Boldly command and teach the truth of God's word. Be a model of spiritual virtue that all can follow. Faithfully read and explain and apply the scriptures and exhort the flock publicly. Progress toward Christ's likeness in your own life. Be gracious and gentle in confronting the sin of the people. Give special consideration and care to those who are widows. Honor faithful church leaders who work hard. Choose church leaders with great care. See to it that they're both mature and proven. Take care of all that's necessary so that you are strong enough to serve. Teach and preach principles of true godliness. Help your people discern between hypocrisy and what is genuine. Flee the love of money. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight for the faith against all enemies and all attacks. Instruct the rich to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous. Guard the word of God as a sacred trust and a treasure. That's 23 of them from the first letter alone. Second epistle, keep the gift of God in you fresh and useful. Don't be timid, but powerful. Never be ashamed of Christ or anyone who serves Christ. Hold tightly to the truth and guard it. Be strong in character. Be a teacher of apostolic truth so that he may produce himself in faithful men. Suffer difficulty and persecution willingly while making the maximum effort for Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ all, all the time. Lead with authority. Interpret and apply scripture accurately. Avoid useless conversation that leads to ungodliness. Be an instrument of honor and dignity, set apart from sin, useful to the Lord. Get away from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, and love. Refuse to be drawn into philosophical and theological wrangling. Don't argue, but be kind, teachable, gentle, and patient, even when wronged. Face dangerous times with a deep knowledge of the Word of God. Understand that Scripture is the basis and content of all legitimate ministry. Preach the Word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. And by the way, do the work of an evangelist. I go through that list now and again. By anyone's account, it's overwhelming. It's obvious why the shepherds of the sheep, as Doc said, and even we heard the clip of it on Friday night, shepherds of the sheep must utterly depend upon God's sufficient grace for the daunting and humanly impossible responsibility. And what a privilege. So we come to this section. I want to make some introductory comments about what Peter says here in verse 1, but for the sake of an outline that we will get to next time, basically, Peter is going to tell the shepherds to shepherd the flock of God, number one, because Christ is worthy. Number two, because rewards are heavenly. 
And number three, because sheep are needy. Number one, because Christ is worthy. Number two, because rewards are heavenly. And number three, because sheep are needy. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. Peter does a unique thing here. As it relates to New Testament terminology, when the church began and terms were being used in the Greco-Roman context, the apostles, when they moved from synagogue worship and temple worship and Sabbath worship to the Lord's Day and the local assembly of God's people as they were being added each day, the leadership brought those same ideas and terminologies forward into the new covenant people of God. And so we use terms that Peter uses here, and Peter does a unique thing. He uses them interchangeably. Shepherd, elder, sometimes translated overseer, sometimes translated the the one who pastors the flock. These are terms that are used, and Peter takes all three and brings these concepts together in this one section. So just for the sake of defining some terms to make it helpful as we work our way in the next few weeks through this section, Peter takes the New Testament terms for those that lead the church and he uses them here interchangeably. He uses the term for overseer or sometimes in older translations, bishop. Even you see denominations using the term bishop today. It's not an offensive term. It just comes from this particular word in the New Testament language for overseer. And then the term for pastor is used And you have even a term here for elder. So the term for overseer is kind of used in the New Testament to speak of uh, the, the guardian, the one who presides over it, watching over it, and takes responsibility for it. The term for this uh, appears five times in the New Testament. Uh, once for Jesus Christ as the overseer of our souls and the other four references for leaders in the church. And Peter uses it here. It had, of course, the roots in the way that they would use it in secular society and that Greek society. But it carried the idea of someone who watched over the affairs of the community. He watched over the affairs of the province. In the early days of the church, the title wasn't used much until Gentiles came in the church because they understood it a little bit more like that. It was the guardian, the overseer, the one, I like to see it as the one who lays the burden on his shoulders for presiding over it. Because then that speaks of the burden and responsibility of a leader. Peter also uses the term here for elder. I exhort the elders as your fellow elder, and he's using overseer and elder here interchangeably, but elder here speaks of the 
the maturity or the character that's tested and proven. The term for elder is where we get our word presbyter or presbytery. It is, in this context and in the New Testament, largely a reference to someone who's proven. They've been down the road. We might say seasoned. Someone who's seasoned. Do you remember I mentioned to you that sometimes the church got in this habit of just taking these unproven men and sticking them in positions for which they didn't have a whole lot of testedness. That's dangerous. Not the age of the man, it's the testedness. Timothy was a young pastor, and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he's told, hey, the guys that are coming in and disrupting the church with false teaching and they're coming against you, don't let anyone despise you because you're younger in age than your mentor, the Apostle Paul. Don't let them do that. But by proven character, silence their criticisms. That's what he says. By your example, close their mouths. He knew Timothy had been seasoned for the role. So it wasn't the age that was the issue. It was the character that had been tested and therefore we might call it seasoned. And then you notice he says, shepherd the flock. So he's using the term from which we get our word pastor, a shepherd, a pastor. Most New Testament texts translate it shepherd with the exception of Ephesians 4.11, which translates it pastor. It's used several times of our Lord, of course. And the title emphasizes more of the idea of the care and the nurture and the feeding and the leading so that's what you have. You have this idea of someone who takes the burden and responsibility to oversee. You have someone who is tested and seasoned enough to be serving the church in that way. And then you have someone who's willing and able and serving in a sacrificial way to care for and lead and feed the flock. All of these terms Peter pulls together into this text. All three terms throughout the New Testament refer to the same leadership calling, but each one emphasizes these particular aspects. You notice also here that the New Testament pattern of multiple leaders that God raises up in a flock, the plurality we sometimes call it, that places the accountability squarely on the shoulders of all the elders who serve under Christ. No one man tells everyone else what to do. There might be one seasoned man who ultimately, like Doc was to us, the man we look to for years and seasonedness and provenness. His voice is powerful among the elders. He comes to the table with skill in God's word that we respond to. There's a leader among leaders in a Doc Zemeck at the table. And of course, those things are determined by gifting and years and maturity and areas of discipline in the Word of God. The primary preaching pastor, as you note, whose giftedness necessitates that he take a large role in the leading ministry of a more prominent uh, place, that's something God does by gifting. You see this even when Paul talks to Timothy about elders ruling the church well and being worthy of double honor, and then he mentions those who work hard in preaching and teaching. It's just a, 
a demonstrative sort of separating out of those servants in the church that God has raised up who will have the speaking gifts and the discipline and burden and seasonedness to take the word of God, bring it to God's people in the more prominent teaching roles. And even that is therefore separated out. Elders are in a plurality. They have the same culpability before Christ. All of the elders of Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, and you should, uh, while you're here in the ministry, serving Christ in the ministry, you should work your way uh, over time to meet them and talk with them and spend time with them. Uh, First Thessalonians indicates that very thing. Know them and esteem them. He doesn't mean exalt them to a pedestal. It means esteem in the personal, intimate way. Get involved in their life. Find out what their prayer needs are and the sacrifices they make and the burdens they carry and know them that way. You can't know them all that way, perhaps, in a church this size, but you can know them that way and get to know them so you can pray for them and and, uh, help carry those burdens with them. So they all have the same culpability before Christ because we all answer to Christ in the service of the church. We just don't have the same function based on giftedness. We have different places we serve and different ways that God uses us in that way. So Peter says here, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. So this is Peter's direct preaching to the leaders of the church, take the lead in a suffering and affliction. Get out in front of the flock. Don't run away from your responsibility. You are called to oversee it and bear the burden. You are called to be mature and tested and proven. You are called to get involved in what they need for food and how they need care and come around it and be a pastor. That's what the servant of the church is called to be. I know in the sort of organizational mindset in denominations and church life, we have often seen it differently. We've often seen it as sort of a hierarchy and there's these important people and they wield all this personal power and this organizational power and all these underlings look to that person with organizational power and it kind of becomes a little bit of a structured empire the way it operates. This this is not how leadership is to function in the church. And Peter nails it right here by taking all three terms so there's no escaping. Any view of leadership that that wants to make these so distinct so as to be different positions and, and not interchangeable would be illegitimate in the interpretation of this verse. And he sticks it right in a context where he is going to absolutely charge them in. Don't run just because there's affliction. Don't be a hireling and leave just because it gets difficult. Don't stop caring and nurturing. This is the flock of God. And when Paul left the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, over which God has made you overseers. God has appointed you as an overseer. Don't leave the flock. Shepherd them, Peter says. I'm a fellow overseer, and I I literally bear the same burden you do. I have the responsibility of presiding. He even had the apostolic office, which was profoundly weighty and I don't want you to be unproven 
I want your progress to be seen and known. I want you to know how to feed and know how to lead. It's interesting, he doesn't... Um, in a letter that has more commands than, than any of the other New Testament letters per capita, if you sort of ratioed it next to the amount of verses, Peter commands the most, but here he's not really putting that kind of force with it. This is an urging as a fellow shepherd. I am coming alongside you, and I'm urging you. He knows that Satan's going to go after the leaders. He knows that Satan wants to fill the church with leaders that are not fit, leaders that don't have provenness, can't handle God's word, and will run from the most serious attacks and assaults. He knows that. And so it is no wonder Peter goes here. By the way, verse 2, when he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, he's referring to the wonderful analogy that was brought forth from God himself as he reveals his own heart and through the history of the ancient people of Israel. If you read all the way back into the prophets, if you go all the way back into the Psalms, if you go into the Old Testament and how God worked with his people, God always said his people were analogous to sheep and God is analogous to their shepherd who intimately cares for his sheep. It's one of the reasons I think that Peter didn't say elder the flock of God or in some other way use one of these other terms, oversee the flock of God. He said shepherd the flock of God. It was the care and the feeding and the tender coming alongside in fact, notice verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, in your midst. This is where the shepherd belongs. You've heard pastors say before, and you can read it in just about any volume on church leadership, a shepherd ought to smell like his sheep. Not only is he one of the sheep under Christ, but if he's called to serve the sheep, he is in and among them. We have a whole trend going on today where people are called pastors and they don't have a flock. How can you be a poimino, a shepherd, without a flock? That doesn't make sense. We have men training pastors who don't have a flock. We have men who are teaching great things and and maybe perhaps even in an institution where there's theological education going on, but they don't have a flock. Peter excludes the dynamic there by putting this in this context. You, as fellow elders, in the midst of the flock of God, he will later say, notice verse 3, allotted to your charge, the flock put to your charge, under your care, the little group that God has given you. I think about that when I think about this church. Gosh, the elders think about that, and we pray for the sheep given to our charge. You know, sometimes the, the pragmatic movement was always teaching these young guys, hey, if you have 300 people show up right away, you got a church. That's frightening to me. 300 people showing up, we need shepherds. Oh, my goodness. We need faithful shepherds. If you're allotted to our care, if you're our charge, 
I mean, Hebrews 13, 17 says, I'm going to give an account for your souls as to the shepherding responsibility. That's serious. Look at Ezekiel 34 for a moment. Back in the prophets. Ezekiel 34, just prior to Daniel. The shepherd sheep motif is so profound and deep from the Old Testament. Verse 11, Ezekiel 34, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he's among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. That is a, a picture of the shepherd in the midst of his sheep and they're scattered all over the hillside eating and he's watching over them because they're scattered and they're eating and they could be scattered by a wolf, endangered. Verse 12, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. That's right. And when the great patriarchs of Israel passed the estate to the children, and the last will and testament spoken on their deathbed included references to God's intimate watch care, they called it this, shepherding. That's what they called it, Genesis 48. Jacob blessed Joseph, we've read this before, and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, bless these lads. I mean, the idea of a hoverer, the idea of someone to shepherd, I think about that when I think of you young families bringing up young children. You fathers, you, you have to shepherd that little flock in your home you grandparents, you, you passed the baton and the children are seen as sheep and the patriarch passes the baton to a son or a son-in-law and says, you now shepherd them, I shepherded them. We've missed that in our culture, haven't we? That whole thing is lost. We have so many young people coming into this church, they have no recollection of any such shepherding that went on in their life. They've never been shepherded by anyone. They've certainly had the adversary come after them and they, he has directed them all over the hillsides on the gloomiest and cloudiest spiritual days. And they come here and we want them to know Christ is your chief shepherd and your history, God has been merciful to cover over your history, but... It's, a, it's an exhortation to the young families coming up, dads, grandfathers. The whole motif of the Old Testament was that you are to say to the next generation, bless these lads, O oh God, because they are taking up the shepherding mantle. And what is the most popular, most memorized psalm? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The intimate knowing and caring for his sheep is woven into the fabric of the theology of the ancient people of God. It's woven into her music and her everyday way of life. You come to the new covenant, the church is Jew and Gentile brought together into one body, and Jesus Christ, our head, is called in John 10, the good shepherd. 
of his people. Look at John 10. Just to remind us of what Jesus says here. What great words. Verse 10, verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the one who's a hireling and not a shepherd, he's not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep. And he runs as swiftly as he can. And the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. And this one who's supposed to care for them, he runs because he's a hireling. He is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. One flock with one shepherd, he goes on to say. Did you know that for all eternity we're still going to be called sheep? According to Revelation 7, 17. The lamb is in the center of the throne. He'll be called their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. He is called our shepherd in the midst of his sheep for all eternity. Back to 1 Peter. I'm urging, therefore, accordingly, with regard to how we're supposed to suffer if we're doing what's right, therefore, accordingly, I'm urging the elders, the ones who bear the responsibility, the ones who take care of the affairs, the ones who are tested, they're seasoned. I'm urging the seasoned ones among you as your fellow seasoned one and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I've seen it. I've watched it. We don't know. We have no record of Peter being very close to what was going on at the cross. John was there, of course. But the Gospels tell us that all of those who were acquaintances of Christ and those close to him were watching. So he was within sight of it. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He must have meant even more so. I, I witnessed that he died and I witnessed that he rose from the dead and I witnessed his calling me out of fishing to the ministry. I witnessed all of that. We saw that recently in our Courageous Churchman Conference. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ and I'm a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. What does he mean by that? He means that I've been telling you to suffer for doing what's right. I'm telling you as your shepherd, I'm going to suffer for doing what's right. You don't have to fear that I'm a hireling. You don't have to fear that I'm going to stop teaching you the right things just because everybody's against it in the culture. Listen, beloved, isn't that securing? When my wife and I were looking in our early days as a Christian for a good church in the area in which we lived, we went to probably 10 places in a small place. And we could not find a place where the 
word of God was handled well. And of course, we, we were listening to, at the times, any kind of media we could from some of these, these great preachers like James Boyce and of course, Dr. John MacArthur. So we, were, we knew our appetite was lit up for good teaching and we just searched and searched and searched. And so finally, we just packed up our car and drove across country. And we got there and we found out there were thousands of people coming across the country to be a part of a place where, where the man wasn't a hireling. The elders weren't hirelings. They didn't run. They didn't flee. They stood. And I remember we went into our first service there. We'd only prayed that goofy prayer when we were new believers. Lord, if we could just hear... Uh, that man, one time we would never ask for anything again. You remember praying that? It was, that's exactly what I prayed passionately. I won't ask you for another thing. <laughs> the Lord is kind with our ignorant prayers, isn't he? <laughs> and there we were in our first church service in the very back, sitting in the back, weeping against the wall near the center door. We weren't just overcome by emotion to be there, what struck us was the sense of security that washed over us. The sense of security that washed over our souls. We know we're going to be fed the Word of God and only the Word of God. Hasn't it been the testimony of some of you who are at Grace Emmanuel Bible Church? doesn't matter what elder gets in the pulpit or what fellowship group you go to or what home Bible study you go to that's overseen by the elders and those who are under shepherds and lay people and laymen teaching you. It doesn't matter, does it? I have never in 22 years here after training and leading and shepherding along with the elders, all of the men who teach here and have the gift, uh, I have never heard anyone come and say that this is a mishandling of God's word and a destroying of the sheep. Never. That's security. That's precious. And some people have moved here even recently and said, here's why we came. Because we got online and we heard things and we, we hadn't been able to find one in our state or our city or our area. I love that. It's not anything about us. It's just about what God does when we do what Peter says here. Shepherd the flock of God for the sake of Christ's return. The chief shepherd is coming. You better be serious about this. And then he says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is all about being out ahead, even in affliction. And the first one he mentions here is, I want you to do this because Christ is worthy. I don't want there to be some other compulsion. I don't want you to do this uh, by some other, some earthly compulsion, because that will fade. 
I don't want you to do it because you went to and trained in seminary and that's why you do it, or some family members thought you ought to, always ought to be it, or some fellow mentor said you belong in ministry. I don't want you to do it for any of the earthly reasons. Because when affliction comes, you won't do it anymore voluntarily. You won't do it. It won't be with the passion of your heart for the worthiness of Christ. It'll be something less than Christ, some earthly compulsion. You know what burnout is? <laughs> and I feel for brothers who've said they burned out. But in the end, many whom I've talked to who said they burned out look back on it and say, I had expectations that didn't get fulfilled and they were all earthly. There are earthly expectations. I preached and no one came, or uh, the church split four times and it was just really difficult. And, and, you know, people, best friends betrayed me on the elder board. And all the things the Bible says are going to happen. You cannot avoid them. But they had the, un they had the expectation that those things wouldn't happen. Well, of course you're going to, quote, burn out. Ministry is exceedingly daunting and difficult, and yet voluntarily. I do this. We do this because we've been called to do it, and the one who called us is the chief shepherd. And there's nothing more, more powerful than the singular motivation of the worthiness of Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that, and Peter knows it. And so he puts it right on him, right up front. Don't do this for some earthly compulsion. Don't be pulled to it because you have to do it. Never look at ministry because you have to do it. You say, what about Paul saying, woe is me if I don't preach? He's talking about the worthiness of Christ. Woe is me if I don't preach for Christ because I'm obligated because he saved me. There's no earthly obligation in that. I love Christ. He saved me. I want to honor him. I don't always honor him. Tomorrow I want to honor him more than I honored him yesterday. That is to fill the shepherd's heart, Peter says. I tell you, that right there alone is gripping to your elders. Do we do this for the worthiness of Christ? Peter knows that'll be a great example to the flock because he's about to say to the younger men in the church and single them out. I know you guys like to get all your energy and all your stuff together and all your machismo and go do things, and it ends up in untested pride and hubris, and he's going to single them out and say, you young men, be subject to your elders. Why? Because the elders are the ones who know how to carry the heavy burden in heavy affliction and stay on target. They know how to point you to the worthiness of Christ. You young guys are all about, still about struggling with reputation and, and prowess and comparison to people. I want you young men to stay under the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves in humility. So Peter, if you just backfill that into his admonition here to shepherds, what comes to me is simply this, pastor, be humble and submissive to the service of the church. And when affliction comes, bring yourself under the affliction so you can blaze a trail and be out front and take the lead in affliction. Whatever may come. And beloved, it's coming, isn't it? It's coming. Some point, 
they're going to say, you can't speak like that anymore. And your elders are going to have to say, we must obey God. And they're going to say, be quiet or else. And we're going to say, we must preach. Woe. Woe are we if we don't preach. You may be praying for leaders who take the first wave of legal trouble. As many already across the globe and even in our own country have faced. So Peter's preaching. He's getting after it. I feel it. I'm sweating. More to come. Let's pray. Lord, this is, of course, apart from your grace, impossible. All of the leaders here at Grace Emanuel admit and confess we don't have it within ourselves to do it. But you've called us to it, to serve this flock. Lord, if folks have come from ministries where Peter's words here were not the whoop and wharf of the ministry, they weren't the foundation, and I pray that you would lock them into what Peter says here and that they would come to love the standards set by you for the church and her leaders. May we be able to shepherd them as we're called to here in the way that would please you most. Help us learn to do that. And to be a gospel influence in that way and take the lead in affliction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.